Cradeline Network. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. Earthlets. My name is Conrad, and this is the 273rd episode of Space Spitter 2000, a podcast where we try to make sense of the UK's own galaxy's greatest comic, 2000 AD, one month of progs at a time. This episode, we're taking a break from weekly progs and once again venturing into the exciting world of special editions, in this case, the 1993 sci-fi special. It's the 16th sci-fi special. There's only three more to go. This one features some of 2080's more niche characters, some classic dread, and the debut of an upcoming maniac. The price of the specials has held steady at a pound 50, but I'm far more excited about my guest for this episode, Steve Lacey of the Fantastic Cast Podcast. Welcome back to the show. Oh, it's me. Hello. Welcome back. Uh, I... Really, we last saw you here on Space Spitter for the 1983 sci-fi special. So I see what you're doing a, here. Yeah, only only fitting to bring you back a decade deep into uh, Thrill Power to see what's going on. There have been a few changes. A, a couple. A couple of remodels. Know, yeah, some remodels, addition of color. I think three different eras of, of creative teams or so coming mm. in. Yes, yes, but no, it, it's great to be back. Um, yeah, I had a great time last time, um, and you've given me this this sci-fi special to read this time, which I thank you for. <laughs> it's you know, there's some interesting stuff in here for sure. Ups and downs, I guess. That is one way of putting it. <laughs> Indeed. Well, you know, I'm on. I I'm, I'm grading on a scale, I guess. I'm I'm hip deep in it, but um, I was wondering if um. You had any 2000 AD memories from this era, I guess. Were you reading at this point? Um, do you remember what was going on in, in the progs and stuff? Uh, no, I very much wasn't reading at this point. Um, I'm I'm quite a late comer to 2000 AD. Um, mm-hmm. My first progs are in the dying days of Day of Chaos. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, and one of the reasons for that is that... Uh, the so I would have been t- uh, depending on exactly when this came out over the summer. Um, I would have been nine or ten at this point, mm-hmm. so probably hovering a little below the target age for two thousand AD. And I do remember sort of seeing various progs on the shelf either of two thousand AD or the magazine. I don't think I was distinguishing between them at the time, mm-hmm. but um, it wasn't the most welcoming of titles for a ten-year-old. Um, no, no. Yeah, we're definitely getting more into this sort of teenager lad era of 2000 AD, for well, sure. Well, there's there's that. Uh, but there was also um, kind of a, the visual, the aesthetic sensibilities, which were mm. uh, very heavy on the painted artwork, mm-hmm. oftentimes which wasn't particularly um, realistic in any way, but also... Uh, thanks to some of the printing processes, not the most... Right. <laughs> yeah, it, it's dull looking in some mm-hmm. places because of the colours. And we know those colours weren't there on the original artwork. It's all to do with the, the how the artwork is reproduced for the printing. Mm-hmm. But it, it's not something that I ever looked at at the age of 10 and went, oh, I must get. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, I, I probably bounced off a lot of the 90s stuff because even if I had any exposure to kind of the big comics at the time, I probably wouldn't have been that interested in them either. At the age of 10, I was very much a Beano reader and stealing my brother's dandy because he got those. <laughs> um, enjoying the humor, enjoying um, 
the cartooning. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I was very much in the vein of my favourite strips were the sort of more uh, esoteric, the kind of the crazy drawing stuff in the style of um, Ken Reed. He wasn't drawing for the beginning mm-hmm. of the time, but people are very clearly influenced by him and... Um, like my favourite strip in the Beano was Calamity James, for instance, which was I think uh, there's a very clear line between Reed stuff and what was being done in there, and the little throwaway jokes that would be in the marginalia. Those kind of things really got to me. But at, at this point, I don't think I'd even discovered uh, US comics mm-hmm. because oh, wow. my gateway into that. Well, I mean, I, I was growing up in a small town in Gloucestershire, uh, so there, there wasn't anything. There was the news agent. And mm-hmm. that was it. There, there was no access to comics. And uh, it would have been probably a couple more years before I kind of ventured into the adult section of the library in the fabled teen section, which is where you started to have graphic <laughs> novels. Uh, but that's where I would have come across eventually Roger Stern's novelization of The Death and Return of Superman in its hardcover version mm. with the bleeding S-Shield on the black, um, <laughs> uh, black cover. And mm-hmm. that was basically where I got into it because I read that book and was amazed and going, he's just spent two pages describing a Supergirl that isn't Supergirl, but is Supergirl. Uh, what, <laughs> what, and, and sort of the way that he brought you into all these bits of continuity made me want to go and get more. And eventually I, I did pick up things like Nightfall and uh, The Return of Superman were kind of my first trades and things led on from there. But mm-hmm. 2000 AD was this thing that very, was everything about it said, not for me. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, I could see it definitely being very opaque. Yeah, to just a uh, to a kid coming up, yeah. especially uh, from from the Beano and then superhero comics, these sort of four color things to this weird, muddy um, yeah. <laughs> expanse of 2000 AD. And I, I didn't have access to back progs. I didn't have mm-hmm. uh, a family member or a friend of the family who was like, "Go and read this." Yeah, and sort of introducing me through that. So kind of a lot of these pathways that I hear your other guests talk about just weren't yeah. open to me. The, the closest thing I ever had, my uncle was a big fan of the original Dan Dare stuff, and he once had a book for Christmas, sort of coffee table book. It was the history of the the Eagle uh, and the fifties Dan Dare, which he let me have a, a flick through, and I looked through it and went, mm, "This isn't." very exciting is it <laughs> oh man those, uh, those also, classic dan dares are tough yeah for sure <laughs> but he also turned me on to the goons so i yeah he definitely hit better there oh yeah <laughs> you know rains uh, uh clouds and silver linings for sure yeah so yeah my, my, my memories at the time just don't exist so um, one of the things i've been wanting to do for a long time was the prog slog the the podcast has been my reason to do so mm-hmm. even though i'm i'm quite some way behind um, the what, current episodes uh, at the time of recording and definitely at the time of release but it, you know, rediscovering this, finding what I like finding what I don't like um, seeing all the early work of creators that I've I've, I've come to love through other things like yeah. you know, all that early Steve Dillon stuff Preacher was my first, inverted quotes um, adult comic mm-hmm. uh, so you know, I've been reading Dillon for almost as long as I've been reading comics so you know picking up the start of his journey, seeing some early John McRae, one of my favourite artists and someone that I, I, I always enjoy seeing at conventions. Um, I've this past year been really into Roger Langridge. Uh, I mean, I always have been, but his mm-hmm. daily cartoons that uh, I, I live in Belgium and there's something about the time I would turn on my laptop in the morning for work and his 
cartoon would pop up in Twitter almost immediately, which is a great start to the day. So jumping back to the early days of the Meg and seeing his work in there and going, mm-hmm. this is this is really recognisably language. Like his style yeah. has both changed, but also not changed in that time. So I'm really enjoying filling in the blanks of all these people. Um, and, and yeah, and then discovering people that I, I didn't know played a role in it. Um, are people who I've not really encountered before or mm-hmm. people who are sort of vaguely aware of the name but have never sat down and read their stuff. So, yeah, it, there, there are joys in discovering this stuff in, in my late 30s. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I feel like the the fun thing of the prog slog from a, for, 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 from a modern reader is definitely seeing these sort of primordial versions of, of artists and writers sort of figuring out how to do things and then you know, go, go forward from there. I think, um, we've been seeing a lot of also, uh, Greg Staples in, in 2000 AD, especially. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting because I feel like he's, he's, you can almost see his, his, his art, uh, sort of refining from thing to thing as we, as, um, he, as, as he does more and more in 2000 AD, for instance. Yeah. And, you know, discovering ones that I never heard of, but have become huge fans of like, um, I remember the first time I read that that history of 2018, the 40th anniversary or the 30th mm-hmm. anniversary, the first version basically, <laughs> and how everyone slagged off Bernard Nelly. Like Pat Mills can't open his mm. mouth without saying something bad about Bernard Nelly's art. And I'm just like reading it and going, but this is amazing. Absolutely, uh, yeah, yeah it's he's especially a great the, unsung hero for sure. Yeah, and I I think it's an absolute sin that there's this book that exists that all that happens is Pat Mills talks about how crappy is at everything, even when he's doing brilliant stuff. You know, mm-hmm. he'll say something like, "Oh, there's these great, great uh, surreal backgrounds and these great non-human characters." But he can't draw a nose, so he was shit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I feel like Bellarinelli gets gets dinged for, I guess, sort of being a little bit more. I, I feel like a lot of his action can be static, but then, but there's so much detail and yeah. so much, um, like just just work and everything. You could look at some of like the uh, his his meltdown man stuff, for instance. I always go back mm. to as his his masterpiece in 2000 AD. I feel like, which is what? this, you know year-long epic adventure by sort of two i i would say sort of what you'd class as sort of b tier to that like in, in in terms of fame i guess sort of bellardinelli and alan hebden who just just put together the, this massive thing that is really like i don't know it feels like this like a start of a of a genre of science fiction almost or mm. something something where even if they didn't actually like it feels like a uh like a parallel evolution to like 80 percent of anime almost or yeah. something like that uh or for me it, it's just the the sheer fluidity and joy mm-hmm. in all his um Ace Trucking Company stuff. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, all these uh, wacky aliens and bulbous spaceships and things like my that. My favourite being the, um, what were those, those mini things that would reproduce by whirling around suddenly there? The, the vampires. Yeah. Yeah, yeah which just, is also fun just because it's full of all these caricatures of um, like 2080 staff and his family members and stuff. That's it. But it, it is great cartooning, which is, um, cartooning is a skill that is sorely undervalued because it's not. Mm-hmm big or realistic and um i i think it's just a joy to see that uh and sync so well with those those scripts so yeah um he's someone that i now as literally i'm doing right now will bang the drum for at any opportunity because <laughs> i think he's he's been written into a bad place in the history of 2000 ad um 
you know, not many people will do a prog slog because a you can't get hold of all the old stuff in the mm, way that yeah. you might want to, um, and and b it's a hell of an investment of time. But the uh, Lardinelli is, is definitely um, a, a real standout of the first sort of ten fifteen years of the prog. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely a real high point. We, I know we. He's sort of he's finished up in our in our timeline. Yeah. I think he goes around yeah, in about the, the, in ninety or so. But is was and really my God, the way that he stops working for two thousand AD is so ridiculous. It was, it's, changed, uh, it's, uh, something like he changed his agent and no one had the contact details for his new agent. So for oh, suddenly no. no more work. <laughs> it's it just utterly insane. It's just such a like. There's a there's a hidden story. I feel like in in 2000 AD of just about sort of how or I, maybe in British comics actually just these relations with these Spanish and Italian yeah. um, um, artists that do so much work for all these weekly comics and then just sort of get phased out. I guess. Yeah, I, I should say I, I've just gone and check that. It wasn't that he changed his agent. His agent died in 1993, so it was about this time. Ah. Exactly no, then, yeah. Nothing after that. And of course, he, he passed away in 2007. Um, and while I'm sure there was a small tribute in, in the Meg or something, you know, uh, how lovely would it be if he'd have reached the point where he was able to be on something like the, the 2008 thrill cast and just have a have an hour or two of him talking, even if it would have been through a translator. I don't know what his English skills were like. Yeah. Um, but about his career and, and everything, both within the prog and outside of that. Definitely, yeah, definitely a lot a lost moment. I feel mm. like one of these guys who, yeah, who was a defining moment or a defining creator for these are for these early progs. Oh yeah. man, it takes me back to early stuff like yeah, those early slains as well, which I guess mm. Mills didn't like, but I I have a, I have a soft spot for. I feel like they just like there's very some very Conan esque slains in those days. Yeah, I, I, on slain, I kind of feel if you're basically pre Bisley and you're not McMahon or you're not. Kincaid, you you kind of join the short straw because mm-hmm. you either aren't the person who started off or you aren't the person that defined it so well in the in the the eyes of the readership. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of talent on Slain <laughs> mixed around in there for mm. sure. I'm a I'm a big fa- favorite fan myself as well. Oh, um, but I guess speaking of um, of classic um, American comics for a while back, I wanted to talk about um, your work on 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 the Fantastic Cast with 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 Andy, which has really been one of my favorite podcasts and, and inspirations for this show. Honestly, thank you. Yes, um, sadly, uh, an ex podcast now. Yeah. Um, so we at the end of 2019, we came to a, a conclusion after eight years of podcasting. Um, but yeah, we, we basically uh, were one of these shows, a bit like Space Spinner, where you go through from the beginning and look at everything. Mm. And we so we started in 1961 with Fantastic Four number one, which is a great starting place because it's also the start of superhero comics yeah. for Marvel. Started everything. As yeah. we understand them today. You're not saying that the stuff that came before wasn't important, mm-hmm. but it's it doesn't have the impact. It obviously doesn't lead to the creation explosion of Marvel that happened in the 60s. Um, and mm-hmm. we made it through to some point in... Uh, I can't remember if we got to 1981 or not, but we, we got through two decades worth of comics, basically, um, yeah. which was uh, really quite an achievement. Because when you when you think about Fantastic Four, obviously you talk about Lee Kirby, because it's that great defining run. You talk about John Byrne, you talk about... Uh, you might talk about Walt Simonson, you definitely talk about Mark Wade and Mike Waringo, and you talk about Jonathan Hickman, but especially between 
Lee Kirby and Byrne, there's this huge gap where the book exists and it's publishing stuff, but very little of what is in there gets talked about in the general conversation of the Fantastic Four. You get in with a bunch mm-hmm. of nerds and they'll start saying, oh yeah, I like this issue or this issue. <laughs> so I, I think we did a really great thing of actually going through those and taking a look at the runs and seeing what worked and what didn't, because um, not everything did work, frankly. Yeah. Um, and, and there I mean, are feels, all these yeah. great creators on there, none of them doing their best work. Um, but all of them being thrown in to keep the book going because it's impossible to think of Marvel without publishing it. Yeah, and I love all of the little, um, the side avenues that you end up um, um, going down in the course of of, of following all the Fantastic Four members, all of those strange tales and two-in-ones and things like that of just individual thing adventures, for instance, or or Human Torch. Yeah, so we'd follow the spin-offs and the plan would have been if we'd have made it to that point to then follow the thing. Um, title through the the rest of the 80s as well so yeah mm-hmm. we, we'd go and we'd do the the human torch adventures in strange tales this sort of strange we we want to do a spin-off but we don't know how to do a spin-off right um which has some of the worst comics that marvel put out in the 60s um <laughs> marvel turn one which frequently did a team-up book better than marvel team-up did um mm-hmm. And has in things like the Pegasus Project Saga some of the defining stories of the 1970s. Uh, but we'd also pop where characters would pop up in other books. So obviously, being the premier Marvel team, they they'd be right. loaned out regularly, and you just end up with some really esoteric stuff. Like I absolutely loved the last few issues of the Godzilla title that right, Marvel yeah, published that. in the 1970s. I did one of those with ones. I had one of those with you, I think, I, when I when I came on this show. Quite yeah. possibly, yeah. I can't recall which one you came on for. But yeah, it, it's this... You've had this sort of 20, 20 or 24 issues of Godzilla in the Marvel Universe <laughs> um, wandering around. Uh, and, you know, S.H.I.E.L.D. Are, are trying to track him down. Um, and you have these strange things like, I think the third issue, S.H.I.E.L.D. actually catch up with Godzilla and would have caught him if they hadn't just got into a pissing match with the champions. Um <laughs> But then the last few issues start with um, pin particles being used to shrink Godzilla down to the size of a a rat in New York City. Then he starts slowly growing. So at one point, he's being led around New York City by, I think, Nick Fury. Godzilla wearing a trench coat and a hat. (laughs) But then, of course... Universal disguise. Honestly, (laughs) it is unbelievable. You you have to imagine Toho, we're looking at this and going, what the hell have we done? I mean, I know the things we've done on screen, but this is ridiculous. Um, And then it ends up with what you basically wait for all the time, which is Godzilla in Marvel's New York with all the heroes trying to stop him. Uh, And and it's it's fantastic. Uh, But I would never have come to this if it hadn't been through the Fantastic Four. So it's it's nice to be brought into all these different titles and and discover Mm -hmm. things. And I think the 70s is a brilliant point to do that because apart from anything else, so little of it has been reprinted. Um, Mm -hmm. You really have to go looking for it. I think once you get to the 80s, a lot more of that is available and there's a bit more notoriety because of the people who were reading it as kids then were the people writing about it in the 2000s. So it becomes the people that were influencing the people who were getting into comics at that time and are now writing right. about comics now. So, <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it's great. I, I, yeah, I feel like the... Oh, sorry, go ahead. I, I definitely miss it. I We we finished the show. I put out a couple of episodes in 2020 because during the, those first rounds of lockdown, I was really kind of like, I just want to do something. <laughs> yeah. And I've had an issue of the Fantastic Four sitting in my head for over a year now. Most of the notes written, I keep thinking, I, sh- I should do something with this. But yeah, we'll, we'll see. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's, you know, I feel like how you're describing the Fantastic Four in the 70s is how I think of the era of 2000 AD that we're in right now, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this, like, not very well collect. Like, there's still the same amount of content coming out every, every, you know, every issue, but just not well remembered, not well collected and stuff like that. Yes. And I I'd, suspect we'll, we'll get onto a couple of specifics of that as we indeed. go through this, uh, this special. I'd love to get, I'd love to hear this, uh, th- this missing, uh, fantastic, uh, f- uh, fantastic cast episode though. I've enjoyed your solo ones and, you know, I'm a, a, a big fan of the show. I'll say just generally that, you know, the Fantastic Cast is one of these is probably the podcast that inspired this show the most, just in terms of like how we do things, I guess, from oh. the the music at the start of the show um, to just trying to go over things in detail and stuff. Although we have to, I guess, the the the, the weekly nature of 2000 AD means we got to do things a little faster, but <laughs> then an issue at a time, but still. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. If you were doing that with 2000 AD, I mean, first of all, I think you go mad because of the, the all of it being serialized, but having to maintain six stories in yeah. your head from week to week. I mean, just a week at a time. I mean, e- even a month at a time, there's still like enough like ups and downs, but you can still kind of get things going. But it yeah. means that for, you know, when I like, I have trouble if I, when I'm, when I'm writing my, my script for the show and stuff of, I, I can't like also read too far ahead because I'll get like multiple plot lines mixed yeah. up in my brain and just not know what's going on. You know, <laughs> I gotta be careful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. But I guess... With that, um, we can jump into this year's special. Oh, man. Sure. Um, just to let you know, I guess. Um, so, you know, we're here. We, we're, we're coming in here from uh, Prague 831, which is this first spring relaunch in 93. Um, we've got these very cerebral, almost overwritten <laughs> stories, I guess, like uh, Firekind, Kano, and Armored Gideon. Firekind is especially sort of a a hidden gem story, I'd say. Or, I don't is know. Is that one of the People ones that got the digital collection? this year yes yeah Mm. it was first i've heard of it it, (laughs) definitely yeah it there was an extreme edition and then they put out a digital version of it and it's very much um like john smith being weird basically really john smith being weird wow i'm i'm not saying it's unusual i'm I'm saying that that's the box that it gets put in it's a box (laughs) it's a big box you know Absolutely. <laughs> and so now we're, and uh, yeah, and we're sort of now also sort of on, on the road and we'll see part of it here to this big uh, summer offensive thing, which is a big defining point of 93 and 2000 AD, I guess, with stuff like Big Dave and other things mm. just here to shock our sensibilities and whatever else, I guess. Yes. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> But so the uh, so the cover of the specials by uh, Dermot Power, and it's a montage cover with all, with with most of the characters in the uh, in the special on it. Um, uh, most of them are also just shooting off into random things in the distance. Um, I appreciate that that Brigand Dooms doing it in black and white, like um, like in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, with some of the older cartoons were in there too. Just a random black and white person in there, and. I think it's also just really funny because Tyranny Rex is sort of standing in the middle, like hands on her hips, like, I don't know, guys. Like, I just, uh, I'm just in the text piece this time. Yeah. Um, it, it's, uh, it's 
It's a bit of a dull cover, I've got to be honest. The fact mm-hmm. they've had to go for the strap lines, even bigger guns. They didn't even capitalise the E at the start of even, but they capitalised the B. So I'm very interested in this hmm. um, and the G's as well. Um, yeah, uh, it, it doesn't really do it for me. I'm glad you told me who did the cover because they put the E of bigger over the first letter of his name. And I was looking and going, is oh, that yeah. someone power, someone gower? Is that My- <laughs> Miles Tails Prower? Um, oh, no. I, I just, I couldn't work it out. Um, yeah, this this doesn't grab me. Maybe it no, it's very, would have done it's, at the it's time. It's very generic, it, I'd say, just because it's just sort of the montage, just sort of shooting out there. Like It really is. Not too much. And uh, if I picked this up because I was like, ooh, who's the sexy green chick with the tail? I'd be very disappointed. <laughs> not the, the, the not the first time Terry Rex is they, they just tossed hmm. her on the cover for titillation purposes in these specials, yeah. honestly. Also, is she wearing a cod piece? It, I, it's, it's either a cod piece or it's like the bottoms of like a uh, gymnastic suit, well, like a, or like a, um, a unitard. Well, oh no, but there's a belt too, so I don't know. It, well, the, it could the be belt anything. could be like the branded bit of your underwear, mm. um, but it's the way that it very clearly doesn't. For if it, if it if it is like a um, underwear style thing, it clearly doesn't follow the outline of her body because it extends mm-hmm. sort of halfway down her thighs. Yeah. Maybe that could be the tail. I don't know. <laughs> the the t- tail's behind her. Well, or well, but but it starts on the waist. I don't know. Or maybe that's the you even bigger gun, and we're sort of we've got we, we've well, got hidden, 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 hidden twists. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, yeah. Oh man. <laughs> anyway, even bigger guns is what we promised. So I'm, um, yeah. I'm expecting basically massive guns. To be honest, calling this even bigger guns and not having the ABC warriors in it, what's the point? I mean, I mean, I think they're trying to to replace that with the uh, with with Maniac Five, I guess, which is also a, a mm. robot fighting team or something like that. But yeah, you're right. <laughs> um, they and I guess like we've got guns as. We've had some very vague themes over the last couple of years in these specials. Um, the the mega the uh, the mega special for Judge Dredd, which we'll talk about later in the week, is has this uh, dual dual theme of of love and hate, and actually has like a it like flips over halfway through. So there's two different covers and stuff mm. like working on those themes, which are vague, and this one's even vaguer, honestly. Right. Um, the the inside cover has an intro by Tharg and the table of contents. Um, the intro also mentions this upcoming summer offensive, explains the premise of Maniac Five, and then incorrectly says this is the first foray into Rogue Trooper by Chris Weston because he's also done Friday stuff in a couple other specials and was did did the conclusion of the hit with the original Rogue Trooper back in the '89 Winter Special as well. So, so don't believe Tharg's lies is what I'm trying to say. Mm, yeah. Uh, is this the first time the Summer Offensive was mentioned or has it been sort of hinted at in the progs at the time? It's starting, it's like they've just had one big relaunch um, or like, you know, sort of sort of j- uh, jumping on prog as we call them these days in uh, 828, which we just did last episode. Mm-hmm. But as soon as that one comes out, now they're starting to really start to plug the summer offensive. So they've mentioned a little bit. They've definitely, they're definitely very high on it. Like they really think that this is like a big thing to market around for sure. Okay. Which is why I also mentioned it here, and what I mean, we're we're maybe this this special is maybe a um, 
a month or two ahead of when it would have actually come out, like in the precise timeline, I guess. And I'm just more sort of slotting them in here <laughs> to sort of split the year up evenly, I guess. But it's a, it, it'd be out around this time, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also uh, production credits here, but they're all the names are the uh, are the droid ver- are like the droid character ter name versions of all these people. Yeah, with so one exception. Like, yeah, ex- except for uh, groovy typeface and symbols by a uh, Ryan Hard Disk Hughes. Yeah, <laughs> they aren't that groovy. Although I guess it is funny that that they say groovy just because Ryan Hughes has a very like I don't know. I feel like he's got a kind of a '60s feel to some of his work. I guess. Um, but yeah, but it's like Alan McKenzie is Mac Two and Steve Cook is Robo Cook and things like that. Okay. Um, but, uh, the under. Uh, Overseers Mac One, that's Steve McManus. Yeah, Underseers yeah. Burt, Richard Burton, etc. So here we go. All right, into the into these thrills. Enough of these non-thrill things. So we get started with Thrill One, Rogue Trooper. Script robot John Smith, art robot Chris Weston, Mike Hadley, lettering robot Annie Parkhouse. So always nice to see this killing time team in action of us of Smith and Weston. Um, and I think um, Hadley and Western are sort of sharing art duties here just because there are some characters that feel very like Mike Hadley-esque, if that makes sense. Just telling the difference between these two characters, mm-hmm. like the the nun we'll see, for instance, feels very, very Mike Hadley, who we've seen in like um, Fervent and Loeb and a couple of the things through the uh, through the years in, in the progs. So we're hanging out with um, Friday, the uh, you know new rogue trooper, no biochips here. He's walking the land, low on food, so he looks on his map and finds a nearby farming commune, which he heads into. But on the way, he picks up the smell of carrion and finds the town of Prosperity full of corpses with big bloody boils coming out of them as buzzards and crows pick at them and stuff. Um, It's clear that all this happened fast just because we sort of, I don't know. See, like a lady with a pot of food, with a pot of beans in her lap, or something. Like they didn't know that they were under attack, I guess. And um, it was all clearly done by these weird, giggling, uh, floating jellyfish monsters. Though they don't attack Friday right on sight. Instead, the GI hears a sound in the distance. It's the only survivor of the town, a crying baby. He tends the child as suddenly new sounds and voices appears. There's a bunch of folks. There's a, a bike with a sidecar and Mad Max types. A horse-drawn car, a horse-drawn cart with a nun wearing a gimp mask with a few Chippendales reverends, and a uh, paramilitary dude in a flat-brimmed hat, uh, Kirchival, who's giving the nun a sales pitch. Basically, he's just he's, he says he's, he's just killed this town by commanding these jellyfish, an alien alien race called the uh, Geshra. Um, using a handheld uh, translation device. The nun appreciates the work and says these will be great for their upcoming crusade and goes to pay him as we see Friday um, um, aiming at Kercheval to snipe him. But then the baby starts to cry. Oh, geez, these babies are more trouble than they're worth. <laughs> and so one of the leaders, one of Kercheval's uh, men goes to kill the kid. But Friday instead kills him with a uh, with a knife, and now it's a uh, dude killing time. Basically, real big crazy Friday here, just saying enough as he prepares to go take these guys out. Um, it seems like some of the grunts are looting all the meat from the killed livestock as Friday starts moving among them, slitting throats as you do. 
Um, then some goons find him and start shooting, but Friday escapes and sets off a bomb, which sort of explodes in a great big green explosion and seems to blind everybody, I guess. In the aftermath, he guns down Kirchville, but the um, but the nun sicks the jellyfish on him, and they speak very creepily. Pretty, you know, this is sort of John Smith stuff as well. You know, we'll hide in your body. Um, but um, instead, Friday uh, rushes the nuns, rushes the nun, grabs the voice controller, and sends the uh, the jellyfish against her. And we get some pretty graphic, just like getting torn apart by jellyfish stuff here, which is pretty rough. Um, and then Friday sends the monsters away into the sky and walks from the burning encampment, baby in arm. And we're told that Friday will return to 2000 AD in Prague 850. But I'll let you know that he won't have the baby with him when he does. Wow. We'll just uh, speculate what he does with the baby then. I feel like it's when, it's like when uh, when a James Bond movie ends and he's like in love in the arms of of the of of the lady from the movie, you know, and then she's not there in the next one. He's yeah, just, that sort of thing. But you can assume that they've gone their separate ways, and that she hasn't died as a result of it. The baby kind of mm. going to die the moment Rogue leaves it. It's true. Babies are ter- have terrible survival skills. You're yeah. right. I thought, oh, there's a massive time jump between this and the next uh, next installment of Rogue Trooper. Who can tell? These these special, um, these John Smith Rogue Troopers in the specials are very much just Rogue, want, or Friday, I should say, wandering from one encampment to another that's generally mm. full of monsters and ghosts, basically. Yeah. I, I'm going to imagine there's 21 years that actually Rogue's really domestic. He brings this kid up by himself, faces lots of uh, <laughs> struggles as a, a single father in a war zone, but eventually the kid does well. And, and the last thing that happens before we pick up with Rogue again is Rogue attending the graduation. Oh, oh nice. Yeah, yeah. sir. So, you know, that's... <laughs> Outland University. Yeah. Um... So, yeah, this is a pretty grim and gruesome uh, story. I gotta say, I don't like it starting with him just sitting there with his helmet off because I I was like, oh, this is another blue skin dude. This can't be Rogue. Mm. Um, just giving him a grey buzz cut really ages him. And I just don't want to see it. Keep the helmet on. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the iconic look with the helmet, and I agree. Like, I, I definitely prefer the red mohawk of original Rogue versus sort of the the regular crew cut of Friday, especially because it asks questions about who's cutting his hair and mm. things like that. You know, he's got a pretty fresh flat top there. Like, someone's got to be doing it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then, yeah, again, there's just sort of, I mean, this is sort of par for the course, honestly, for these sort of Smith Weston special road troopers, honestly. Um, we've had another one where he sort of went to a house that was full of, like, molten flesh monsters and stuff. And mm. this one ending with this nun getting, like, impaled, like, I don't know, tentacled from the inside out is sort of, is pretty gross. It's just quite a panel. Because um, the, the the tentacles go in, and then there's just all these sort of thorns erupt from mm-hmm. the body because the, I guess the tentacle splits off and just keeps pushing its way through. Yeah, yeah. But there there is some really weird visual stuff going on, like when the when the nun and the the selling dude turn up. There's just randomly a bloke of nearly naked, uh, sorry, a collection of nearly naked dudes on the cart behind them wearing the sort of Chippendale uh, collar yeah. things. 
because she's from the uh, she's she's the uh, she says she's the high dominatrix of the Church of Mortified Flesh. I guess. <laughs> but what what happens to these men? Are they just sat there on the cart going watching all this going on? Like are they? They set definitely free? yeah. They, they they definitely disappear. Like maybe they got hit by the bomb or something. Yeah. like that. <laughs> they don't get a comeuppance. I guess for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the, the the design for the nun stuff, the the sort of the um, weird. I mean, I can't look at this in twenty twenty one and not go. It's a face mask, but she can undo the mouth bit to speak mm-hmm. from it. Um, yeah, it's like the bottom of like a leather hood, I guess, just with the mouth pulled away. But you're right. Yeah, it, it, in twenty twenty one, it is very much like okay, yeah. So I guess just some safety here. Yeah, for once. <laughs> and just because uh, you know, it, it's. Um, uncharacteristic of 2000 AD in general just on the last page where um, Rogue says into the um, translator you know alright you things want blood the bitch over there is packing eight pints just I, I never like calling someone a bitch in, yeah you're right as a gendered insult it just it feels very strange for Friday or, or for well for anyone to say it mm-hmm I mean, at the very least, not to use like a uh, like a fa- like a a futuristic fake swear yeah. or something like that. that you know? Although, just other ways of doing it. It's just a, a sort of a a nasty moment in a nasty strip. But one has to think these j- sky jellyfish things are absolutely horrific, and Friday just lets them go. Like, surely the yeah. surely there should be a page after this where he deals with them. You know, he can control them with the translator, so he yeah. blows them into a trap or something. He just lets them go. Yeah, it seems like it seems like he's saying that they like go off into space or something almost, or I don't know. Or onto just, the next sort of town. Yeah, it's very, very much not solving the problem here. It's <laughs> just passing it off to someone else, mm. I guess, which is is very Friday, I guess, in terms of of how he deals with things versus Rogue. I guess just in differentiations between these characters, Friday's a little crappier than Rogue, who yeah. will take things out. <laughs> I guess. can't imagine uh, why the Friday version was unpopular. I mean, we we we've had a a a a gap in it for a while, but they're about to, um, or not about to, I guess, but in eight fifty going forward, having a real renaissance. Although I think at least part of it might be part of um, due to that story about how they just gave writer Michael Fleischer yeah. like a standing order for scripts, and he just kept sending them in. And I think, like, they, someone's just checked the post and they've got, like, you know, 20 rope trooper scripts they've got to deal with here or something like that. Mm. Yeah. We're sort of counting down on that. And I feel like we'll have we'll have biochips in the next back in Friday in the next year or two, I, th- I believe, is my understanding of the timeline. Okay. But I guess, yeah, I don't know. Speaking of, of terrifying future events, <laughs> you can <laughs> continue on at 2. Thrill 2, Bix Barton. I've just had a flick through. There's no guns in this, so I'm very disappointed. No. Mm, it's very much just uh, what they had lying around. Uh, script by Peter Milligan, art by James McCarthy, letting about Andy Parkhouse. Um, so, again, Bix Barton, master of the Roman uncanny, etc. We uh, Paranormal, English paranormal investigator and mostly conduit for very English jokes that I struggle to get, essentially. <laughs> um, yep. Old Jimmy McTague has been crying for years. He's this old guy in a blue uniform. But why is he crying? Let's go to Bix Barton being briefed in his bathtub um, on a strange situation by government dude Sir Giles. They take a helicopter to Charing Cross where a bunch of weirdos are running around making woo-woo 
noises. Now, Bix finds a strange, sticky, sticky substance on the ground, which you got to be careful about that, but it sets off his rumometer. Um, and he realizes that all these people are pretending to be trains. Whoa. And I guess we're in a future England where they don't have trains anymore. Um, it's all cars and so forth. So Bix goes to look into it, and to do so, he finds the train spotter. This guy in a Viking ha- in a furry Viking hat who is responsible for decommissioning all the trains, I guess. Um, and I don't know, eating classic um, train sandwiches, I guess. I, I don't, it, it, there's a lot going on here. Um, but anyway, he sort of they sort of trade general jokes about train English train stuff, and he mentions the last railwayman, Jimmy McTagg. Meanwhile, a lady at the lab has researched that liquid Bix founds, and it's a mutated human tear that makes whoever touches it think they're a train, and they'll keep doing so until the crier of the tear stops stops crying, I guess. Also, the tear's full of, whis- of, of whiskey. And that leads Bix's hover car to the locomotive graveyard, where Jimmy McTague is driving trains around through his constant tears. Bix confronts him and eventually offers to turn his tears to laughter, and the Scotsman, not having much to lose, agrees. And then we're back with Sir Giles, and it seems the day is saved, because you see, Bix showed McTagg the massive traffic jams that the highways that were supposed to be better than trains have become, and now he can't stop laughing. Ho, ho, ho. The end of Bix Barton. So what we've got here is satire. Oh, uh, yeah, this... <laughs> just to be clear, it's satire. It's just, we got we got these train jokes, and then we got the, the, these traffic jokes, I guess, and it's just... So much of Vix Barton is, is very opaque, sort of, as an American 30 years later, I gotta say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, going through this... Um... I, I, there's a, a fantastic disconnect between writing and artwork. So on the second page where we see the people running around going woo-woo, mm-hmm. um, the caption literally says, running around in that silly, stiff way, as we see people literally prancing and flailing their limbs around. <laughs> it's like... Yeah, they're definitely not doing train no, impressions. They're, they're, they're just sort of like flopping about. You're right. Like, I've created a character of every race and gender combination in World of Warcraft, just so I could do slash train and see what their train emote was. <laughs> and none of them do this. Yeah, you kind of put your arms at, like, right angles at your side and then kind of move them over. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm doing it right now, and I realize no one can see it, but, like, listen, there, there's a move forward for sure. Um, <laughs> the, the amount of work that's... I can't remember if... Um, uh, Sir Giles is a regular character in Big Spartan or not, or if he was just for this one. No, I think he's just for this so one. So that's a lot of work done, just so that uh, we can have the joke. Indeed, I think I know what's making Charing, Sir Giles Charing, cross, as in mm. the terminus station Charing Cross, but also Charing Cross is uh, geographically uh, the central point of London, as in whenever you see mm. a road sign that says, I don't know, 20 miles to London, it's 20 miles to the point of Charing Cross. Uh, I see. I've I've been to the train station now that I'm in England. Mm. Like I've, I've I've been there a couple of times heading to London and stuff like that. So I, that's a joke that I got for the record. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. Now what else? Is there? Uh, I, I got to say, I, I you, you pronounce it rumometer. I I really think uh, and Peter Morgan said it's it's the rumometer. 
Oh, you're you're certainly. I mean, I could definitely see it. Normally, when it's rum o meter, I'm used to having dashes yeah, yeah. In, on on the other side of the o. You know. Um, but this whole thing about the trains disappearing—it's a dig at the privatization of the rail networks, which was. Um, uh, I can't remember if it'd be completed by this point, but it was a recent thing, if not an ongoing thing. So oh. British Rail gone and all the various rail franchises had started popping up. But also um, there's a, an element to this which is linking back to the um, basically the, the beaching review of the railways in the 1950s, which basically closed down uh, the majority of the small lines in the UK linking towns. Uh, hmm. basically came along and decided that they weren't worth having and maintaining. So shut down all these sort of branch lines and link lines so that what you ended up with were basically the mainline services. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a few things where, you know, if he'd have had his way, for instance, I'm sure he wouldn't have had any lines going down to Devon and Cornwall. Um, but there mm-hmm. had to be some kind of link. Um, so, yeah, I, I think basically anything that was passenger only, if there wasn't the, the possibility to put goods on it, uh, it was deemed not to be profitable right. enough um and so the the idea of the trains then being inefficient because you couldn't get to places kind of really comes from there right sort of self-fulfilling f- fulfilling prophecy as well interesting uh, yeah sorry i i really appreciate this train stuff because it's definitely something that yeah it's just it's hard to know it's hard to figure out i guess I, just these i gotta admit i like the joke about the train spotter being um someone who hunts down rogue trains um, that, that is actually yeah, that a is good solid. joke. Um, the the stuff about the the sandwiches. I mean, food on trains has never been great, but it was a particular punchline for a lot of the comedy at the time. Is that the the buffet cars crap? The the sandwiches you get on there are crap. It's all basically all expensive and shit. Mm-hmm. So that's where it comes from. And I don't know what year Big Spartan set in, but I wouldn't want to eat a sandwich that's been hanging around for that amount of time. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's it's definitely in the future just because he's got a hover car and stuff like that. Yeah. But it's very much also like the indeterminate future, you know, like two days from Sunday or something like that. Yeah. Um, the locomotive graveyard. All I've got to ask is how the hell does this they're, they're literally all piled on top of each other. So how does McTague yeah. drive the locomotive? And yeah, and yeah, how yeah, how does he drive this one that that almost hits Bix? And yeah. then and honestly, how did they just toss him in a pile like that? It seems like it'd be it'd be more work to throw them willy nilly like that, as opposed to just parking them in straight rows or I mean, whatever. I, I'd have thought the scrap value would have been enough, but um, mm-hmm. I, I guess the visually it's kind of like the the airplane graveyards in the desert where it's just lines of planes that have flown there and left, right? Um, yeah, uh, privatized me to death. It, it, that is obviously back to the privatization of the well, not mm-hmm. not just the the railways. We'd had privatization of BT, um, the power um, monopolies mm-hmm. as well, all of which was state run, and then were were carved up into chunks and sold off for to be run privately, so it can the the services can be really shit but really expensive. Um, <laughs> yeah. Been double crossed so often. I feel like a pools coupon. The pools isn't really a thing that happens nowadays, and I didn't understand it when I was growing up when it was a thing. But it was something to do with the sports results, and if you crossed enough, you you might win money. You could win big in the pools. Ah. Uh, it was kind of like the, I believe, the main form of acceptable gambling before the lottery came along in the mid nineties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Interesting. Let's see what else is there. Oh yes, the traffic jams on the M1. Um, a something that was happening then, something that happens now. <laughs> yeah, I just took that to be any, you know, any any highway. I feel like just has traffic jams as the as the nature of you know 
their natural state. Yeah. But the, the M1 is, is particularly notable for it. Um, and it's the main link road from London to Scotland, even though it goes to the wrong mm-hmm. side of Scotland for Glasgow. You, you want the M6 for that, unless you're going to cut across Edinburgh. But most people would take the M6 and, and head up there to avoid, uh, you know, yeah. a big chunk of England. Because if you take the M6, you're coming through on the lower side of Scotland. Hmm. All right. Oh, man. All these, all this English stuff. I'm, I'm learning a lot. It's very, like, very overwhelming, this, this island that, we, that we're all now on. Yeah. Oh, man. And I guess speaking on the topic of, um, of a distant history. All right. But also the future, I guess. It's Thrill 3, Seeing is Believing. Uh, script robot Kelvin Gosnell, art robot Colin Wilson, letting robot Peter Knight. This future shock originally appeared in Prague 225 in August of 1981. Oh, gosh, I'd never have guessed this was a dated Prague. A uh, dated Indeed. Thrill, sorry. Um, I, I, it, it baffles me that you would reprint this in 1993. It really does. <laughs> I mean, if just because where video games have gone, you know. <laughs> yeah, this was the year of Doom, for instance, and Doom is as mm-hmm. distant from anything put in here as you know. Imagine reprinting a thing where it's like, right, we've got to get from London to Cambridge. Well, we better get on this horse and cart when you can right, drive there exactly. in an hour and a half. <laughs> totally, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so this one, it's a plain old day in the town of Eddington until the space invaders attack. And indeed, if you look at their ships, they've got that distinctive space invader look. Luckily, the town has a bunch of howitzers to fight them off, I guess. And Jim, a local dude, is killed in the fighting, but then wakes up at home. No one seems to make a big deal about this, but he freaks out and heads out of town, passing full-scale tank battles and other scenes. And eventually he reaches the end of the road to town and finds a wall. He's sort of either maybe Truman showed or, or 13th floored his way here. And then a giant face suddenly appears. It tells him that all of Eddington died in a neutron bomb accident. But before they were all died, the whole town was digitized and put into a computer system. The whole process was expensive. So now the digital town and townsfolks are rented out to be characters in video games. And Jim realizes the truth as the world pixelates around him. And man, we're all just spirits and caught in a video game. Descartes was right. Oh, no. Um, and I'll say just generally that um, the, 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 the twist of this one, the they're actually all stuck in, in a video game, is officially outlawed for future shocks now in 2018. <laughs> like they've got a specific like moratorium on stories where that is, where that's the the plot. Sort of like it was all a dream or something like that. Yeah. Like just don't do this. I mean, <laughs> you know? this is Free Guy, but from 1981. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, as in of itself, it's actually a really good future shock. Colin Wilson's artwork is superb. Um, like mm-hmm. the way he takes the the space invaders ships, but turns them into you know three D objects that match the aesthetic of the uh, of the strip is superb. Um, but yeah, it is. It just it's so strange to me that you would choose this one to be reprinted in the spring of nineteen ninety three. Absolutely, yeah. It's just yeah, like you say, it's just h- hilariously dated versus what the anyone reading this comic would see in terms of video games, like. You know, again, it's it's something that I feel like this is sort. I mean, definitely not far from the only. It's actually a video game future shock in the early '80s, but still fairly new and something that people were still wrestling with. I guess. Another, but other than um, Space Invaders, like the other 
game references don't aren't ones that um, really have lasted. Like the the bit where he comes across mm-hmm. the tank battle. That's the game. That's the really basic game where it was just two tanks that would drive very slowly, blipping around the map and attempt to shoot at each other. Which I only Absolutely. know because it appeared on an episode of um, Dara Brian's Go Eight Bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel like I might have, when I was a kid, might have like like programmed one in BASIC or something yeah. like that. Just as like a very, yeah, again, a very these very simple games to just sort of that they're just figuring out how to do. You're right. Yeah, it's very like you know jokes that are current at the time, but now barely even make sense. Yeah, no. yeah. But I agree. I love the artist because it's got like you know it's such a uh, like. I don't know, mom and pop, small town America here. And then suddenly the howitzers pop out and stuff. That 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 is kind of fun. It's not small town. It's 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 home counties, small town. <laughs> Remember, British comic, <laughs> British comic. Oh no. I always you know, you I guess it's Eddington, which is a very English name, I guess. <laughs> oh, but, you just know. as an aside, I put on the aristocrats last night. The the Disney movie, <laughs> and it was for half an hour. Went, oh, this is great! Look at how beautiful Paris is rendered. Um, and then you go out into the country, and the two dogs are basically um, U.S. Southern hick stereotypes. I'm like, <laughs> what? The, why would they be on the outskirts of Paris? No, make them French hicks. Come on! Yeah. <laughs> but it was, oh, it was terrible. <laughs> anyway, that's just an aside. Fair enough. Yeah. After that. Um, we quickly jump in for some commercials for it with an order form for thrills for Tharg's future store. We've seen this one in the in the mm. progs as well. There's a key ring, a long sleeve shirt, and and posters. The posters are weird just because they're by artists that haven't been featured in 2000 AD. Um, like Dave Dorman and and William Marr are both artists artists we have not seen in the progs, but do have dread posters for some reason. Um, and that then takes us to Thrill 4 Brigand Doom. Which has lots of guns in it. This one, uh, because it's written by the editor of the uh, <laughs> of the special, I feel like it really under- understood the brief here <laughs> more than, than, anything, than anyone else. See, I, um, oh, yeah, because the brief was guns. I thought the brief here was, we've got all this black ink lying around. How are we going to use it? Well, that's just Brigand Doom, honestly. <laughs> but even by Brigand Doom standards, this is heavy very dark. Ink. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Um, script about Alan McKenzie, art about Dave Danticke, learning about Andy Parkhouse. I should mention also that I think all of the new comics in this one are, are lettered by, by Annie Parkhouse in this one. Um, I think a previous one was all Gordon Robson. It seems like these specials just get farmed out to one, one letterer for the whole time. Um, so, again, hey, it's not a special unless Alan McKenzie can toss one of his characters into it. That's how you do it, especially Brigand Doom, actually. Um, undead vigilante, Brigand Doom, moves through a dark alley where he's ambushed by a bunch of stormtroopers with machine guns. They rain bullets down on him, like literally, it's like rain effects from like Sin City or something like that. Um, in the black and white of this uh, of this fight scene. And while he can't die because he's undead, there was voodoo involved, his body can be destroyed and he can't heal naturally. So he runs and in the process is forced to leave his uh, iconic sawed-off shotgun behind. Later, a woman finds the gun and like, I don't know, she seems like she's going to shoot herself with it or something. But then a man with a beard takes it from her and sort of tosses her aside. Um, and I should say here, like going through, there's occasionally these like 
very detailed close-ups of people's faces in the course of, of Brigand Doom, which makes you wonder if some of these folks are like, I don't know, people Dave Dantiki knows or something like that. I didn't, I didn't recognize it as anybody famous, I guess. And so the bearded man takes the gun to a pawn shop and the pawnbroker buys it and then sells it to some criminals. And in the course of this, there's a lot of like, I've just bought the gun and now I'm going to threaten you with it sort of action, which is why you don't sell loaded guns, I feel like. Meanwhile, Doom has led the stormtroopers into a dark alley where he hides in the shadows and then sort of, you know, jumps in the middle of them, takes them out. So, you know, Batman style, basically. Um, at the same time, the guys with the gun use it to hijack a food truck, which then gets uh, bracketed full of bullets by security forces. They escape from the vehicle as Doom finishes beating up all the troopers. And the truck crashes basically nearby to where Doom is, who is able, and the drivers are all shot to death. So Doom's able to like recover his gun and then hand out all the food to the, um, you know, local children, local townsfolk, I guess. So that it's all, it's all distributed by the time the, uh, the cops arrive. And, you know, Doom's got his gun back and everybody's happy. The end. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting strip. I gotta admit, I don't really get this uh, i don't really get brigand doom <laughs> mm-hmm. that's fair i mean it's um it's one i've been sort of frustrated with i guess as we've gone through it just because the first one had this sort of i don't know like not quite cyberpunk but like i don't know like dystopia like like bureaucratic dystopia basically mm-hmm. that i thought was really interesting um, and then they added in a lot of like supernatural and and voodoo elements to it, which I've I've been less less in 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 keeping with. And then recently in specials, we've just kind of got a couple ones of of just Doom kind of Brigand Doom just kind of doing some crimes. Basically, there was one where you like killed a bunch of people involved in an art exhibit or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, part of it has been like people not having a lot of food and him redistributing it as as we see here. Yeah, the, the, but, it's. Um, I only noticed this just now because it's. I'm now reading it on a big screen. Um, the, mm. the, what he's doing and where he's doing it at the start is only given away by a tiny little sub panel above the title, where you can just about read the words "Municipal Department of Nourishment." Oh yeah, yeah. That's but, and that's part of that like bureaucratic yeah. dystopia kind of but thing. Otherwise, you've got no content. He's just a bloke in an alley, and suddenly there are people hunting him because it's an amb- mm-hmm. like the. the it did a really bad job of just setting up what what this whole thing is at the start of it. Um, you're really expected to know what Brigand Doom's deal is. Um, but he's no dead, can't die. So, you know, one thing I really love about the progs nowadays is that on the opening page, it gives you that brief summary of the setup mm-hmm. for every strip. So even if you're coming in you know, on volume 25 of a strip that's been running since before you were born, you can at least go, <laughs> okay, here's the deal with these two hitmen, for instance. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the, in, in the time, here in 93, they've started doing that in, um, in, in the magazine. We'll have, have a credits page yeah. that then also gives sort of the rundown of, of both the character and, and what's going on in the recent stories. But yeah, I... I in 2000 AD, I agree. It, 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 like they're they're doing it a little bit, or like when a new character, when a character returns, maybe in the nerve center, Thargo give a rundown of them, maybe. But they do kind of expect you to know some of these characters. I, th- I think you're yeah. right. Um, 
I, I think the artwork in here, yes, it's incredibly dark, heavy, and, and fails at some points to convey really what's going on. But generally, mm-hmm. it, it's the most unique stuff. Um, you know, it is all blacks and and to and white highlights to create images. There's no pencil lines. Um, there's no coloring. It, it's all use of shadow, and, and it's really mm-hmm. very different from everything else. It, it's almost the complete opposite of what you would uh, typically expect from 2000 AD art at the time, which is the the, the painted stuff. And mm-hmm. this yeah. is just the complete opposite. I think it's really effective um, and makes this story far more interesting than I think the, the story itself is. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, I feel that. Uh, Dantiki is really, he's the only one who really does this stuff, but he does it. He's done it for definitely Brigand Doom and there's, and a couple of future shocks as well. Yeah. And it is very, it's, it's very distinctive, especially as, as, as we've talked about in a, in a comic that's very sort of, that, 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 that's very painted with these, um, with, attempts at a at a at a at a colors and and this sort of painted muddiness and stuff just these very stark black and white um um lines are very interesting for sure you think a lot of uh the late john paul leon stuff mm-hmm. i'm not familiar with that i'm uh, sorry but i i'll i'll agree i don't know i'm sorry I, my, one of my earliest marvel collected editions was earth x which was um alex ross design john paul leon drawing i think uh, no, it wasn't Kurt Music, right? Someone writing, I forget who it was, but mm. it, it's similar to this in that it's very, very heavy blacks throughout a lot. Oftentimes, it, it's the stuff that isn't black that reveals what the image is. I, I, I struggle with it mm-hmm. a lot in my early days, but I absolutely love it now. Yeah, there's just there's there's a craft to it. I think is really interesting. Definitely, um, I guess in. Moving on to, I guess, classic thrill, or or s- s- someone else out here that that's hungry. I was about to say to... you've got to do better than uh, <laughs> in some no, way than no, moving to a classic thrill. <laughs> hey, speaking of a uh, speaking of a uh, of uh, animated brains on the loose, because <laughs> <laughs> because Brigand Doom's a zombie, you know, it's a whole thing. <laughs> okay, yep, I- I'll admit that second pass much much better. <laughs> Thrill Five, Judge Dread, script robot John Wagner and Alan Grant as TV Grover, art robot Cam Kennedy, lettering robot Tom Frame. So this story originally appeared in the 1985 sci-fi special. We got specials cannibalizing each other. I don't appreciate it. I gotta say. Um, but so this one, Doctor Bob's animal bestiary is headed through some kind of wasteland to its next destination when one of their cages springs open. The beast is loose, and Dread is apparently nearby on patrol, busting some vagrants. When a scream goes up, and he investigates, and it seems like another one of these vagrants has been killed by some kind of monster. Oh no! His his good luck, his bottle of good luck beer was not good enough luck. Oh geez, um, Dread keeps in or checks out the body when suddenly he gets attacked by the monster as well. Luckily, um, even as he grapples with it, he's able to um, voice command his lawmaster bike to shoot to shoot the beast, and it escapes. And so Dredd then, you know, calls into control and goes to investigate. Finding the bestiary, he goes to talk to Uncle Bob. And Bob says everything's fine. But Dredd's, um, Dredd's gut and the lie detector that, that he carries in his hand says that he's, that, that he's saying otherwise. The beast we see sits above, like, the, uh, like on a canyon above the bestiary, above the bestiary looking on. 
and remembers the past of Dr. Bob doing weird medical stuff on a monstrous Corellian dragon, a beast that's notable for its bloodlust and human-sized brain. Dr. Bob's plan is to swap the brain of the dragon with his goon, Igor, and it seems like it was a success. We meet Igor, the Corellian dragon. Ah, oh, but the dragon... Um, sorry. But he. But it seems like Dr. Bob then, I guess, you know, he just had the dragon's brain lying around and you can't just throw that out so he tossed it in igor's body and so igor became a crazy human killing machine and now it's on the loose <laughs> dread goes to goes to arrest bob and the doctor runs but before dread can shoot him the beast attacks and takes out the doctor and dread in turn kills the beast igor as the Krillian dragon is heartbroken by the death of his friend, and Dredd, in a actually shockingly kind moment for Judge Dredd, offers him a body transplant, and the two of them sort of walk off like um, like, like in Casablanca, and Dredd just says, I, I guess there's a beast in every man. The end. Similar to the uh, Future Shock, if you create a, a, a special that's around guns, why would you reprint this? Absolutely. Yeah, it's not a, specific, a particularly gunny um, dread story. I mean, you could have reprinted one of the ones that just where they pause and explain what all dreads bullets do, for instance, would be a perfect one for the for the gun theme, I think. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a fine enough story. Nice to see Cam Kennedy's artwork as always. Um, but yeah, the second I saw the TB Grover credit and that specific judge, I was like, okay, reprint. Absolutely. And kind of tuned out gently. I mean, yeah, it's, it, it is, yeah, it is very much one of these, yeah, a, it's a bummer to get reprints always. And this one, yeah, feels weirdly off theme. And it's not even like a mainline dread one. It's just another special, basically. Yeah. So. You know, and weird out of character dread as well. Although I do, I do kind of like this final thing of the monster with a weird, with, with weird, th- you know, speech bubbles being like, you know, why did he do bad things to Igor and stuff? Mm. And dread just kind of like this, the start of a beautiful friendship with the with the monster. <laughs> what I kind of like to know is, is why when Igor's brain was put into the dragon, physically doesn't really change much, but when the dragon's brain goes into Igor's body, it mutates hideously. Mm-hmm. I think it like I think it does change a little bit. I don't know if you look. There's like a page where you see them doing it, and like the it's got way more like bared fangs yeah. and stuff. Whereas okay, I guess it's just harder to check that way. But um, but they don't they, 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 they don't make as big a deal about the change for sure. And it doesn't make sense that he changed this much just from a brain transplant yeah. versus other other additions or mutations or something like that. You're definitely right. But I do like that the scientist dude is basically Dr. Robotnik. Yeah, the wide, the wide, actually, a couple wide mustaches in this yeah. in this special, actually. That's as much a theme as guns mm. in, the, in this, I think. Yeah, I don't know these these brain transplants. I I do love the idea, or I I chuckle at the concept of well, I I, I couldn't just throw the brain out. You know, I I had to put it somewhere, so I put it in your body. It's fine. Like why? <laughs> don't waste what you don't want. Absolutely, yeah. No, it's very very. It's, it's the it's the brain version of just slowly acquiring a box full of extra cables over the years mm. or something like that. You yeah. Know? <laughs> And, oh, man. Okay. Do we have to? Speaking of complex brain things. 
Let's do Thrill Six Tyranny Rex. Uh, Script by John Smith, art robot Paul Marshall. This is the Firekind team, actually. And yeah, listen, it's not a special in the 90s without a John Smith text piece. This one featuring Tyranny Rex, who I now believe has been in more specials than she's been in the progs. And this is a pretty long story, and the text is pretty small. It's tough. Um, it's especially hard just because the uh, the final page of it is... The, the type is put over this Tyranny Rex symbol and actually becomes pretty hard to read just in terms of... Uh, of the letters sort of blending in with the dots used to shade this uh, Tyranny Rex symbol and stuff like that, which is tactical error, I'd say. And it's very much just, I don't know, like, <laughs> like a John Smith text piece, I guess. Oh, this one's more focused on being, I'd say it's more dreamlike than, uh, than body horror, I'd yeah. say. It feels like uh, he's been reading some Sandman recently. Absolutely. Yeah, it's got a very, like, um, so I guess just sort of going into it, like, space mercenary Tyranny Rex gets stranded in 20th century Earth and bums around England for a bit. Ah, the trains, actually. So we got a couple continued themes here. Uh, (laughs) uh, Bums around England, taking trains. She's on the run from a trans-dimensional enemy called the Lock with three Ks. They find her on a train to Edinburgh in the winter. And she sees a bunch of strange imagery here, like sort of a, there's a big moment of like a a school kid, like putting together a jigsaw puzzle. And then it turns out to be a jigsaw puzzle of the scene they're in. And then his gums start bleeding and the floor is covered in mice. And there's a heavy smell of lemons, things like that. She runs to a bathroom and then gets pulled into the mirror there by a woman dressed in a mourning veil and finds herself in an orchard. At a campfire with two harlequins and a woman in a black wedding dress. And in this mirror world, the locker incarnated beings ruled by the Dauphin of the Yellow Emperor, which sounds like King in Yellow Cthulhu stuff to me. And then, but to fight them, they got to go to the World Tree. And when they get there, there isn't really a fight. The widow just kind of extracts the thought forms of the lock from Tyranny's head and the forms of some brain grubs, and that's like the end of the story? It peters out at the end pretty hardcore, honestly. And I don't know. Just, it, there's a lot here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, first of all, it has to be said, John Smith isn't actually a great prose writer. Mm. I thought there were some interesting moments here, but yeah, it is very, he just kind of likes to lay things out. I feel like, or he's a, he's a big believer in, in creating scenes. I feel like, I think that's what I would call it, say that his, his strength as a writer is, is creating moments, I guess. And there isn't very much about this that wouldn't have worked as a, as an actual strip. Um, so mm-hmm. I kind of read this, read this and went, there's loads of great visual stuff here. Why isn't this being drawn? Um, I mean, that is the challenge of all of these text pieces, that many of them are just sort of built-up comic scripts. And, and, yeah, I had these flashbacks to reading annuals at the time um, and mm-hmm. just dreading getting to the text pages because the stories were crap, um, eminently skippable, but they'd be laid out badly. You know, um, mm-hmm. I, I appreciate that there isn't really a win-win on an annual size because if you try and run the text across the page, it's far too wide but the columns never seem to really work. And then you get to the Mm -hmm. last page of it and whoever decided design-wise to have paragraphs of text over dots in the background needs a damn good kick up the ass for that. This is tough. It's almost impossible to read. And I hate this 90s design that you see lots um, 
where they go right or computerized or we can now layer things Mm -hmm. so let's do that so it looks good from afar can we read it it's not important who wants to read a text story Absolutely. I mean, I, in um, there's an upcoming uh, um, uh, magazine issue, and in in the in the magazine, they on their uh, dreadlines, their letter pages, they do a lot of experimentation with color, and there's one that's like white text on like a red and white background or something and i just looked at it, i didn't even try like i'm you know i'm i'm 40 i'm 40 years old i can't read this this is impossible you know uh, and, and it has to be said I, considering that there are two major physical characteristics about tyranny rex she's green and she's got a tail there's no, no mention of how she just blends in in 20th century england yeah. with those things you're and right whoever draws her cannot draw the tail uh, that is not a uh, it looks like a worm and mm-hmm. it doesn't really match up with what's on the cover because mm-hmm. the cover has the uh, I don't know what they're called but the triangles all the way down yeah like her, her scales I guess or well they're not really scales like scales that. would be a textural piece on the tail but it's a uh, yeah, whenever you draw a dinosaur, you draw the oh the, oh, the oh yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, the like yeah. the the frill or the fin, the, the little fin or yeah. something on the top on the back on top of it. You're right. She's got talons on the cover, whereas here she's just got fingers. Um, again, uh, the only gun we see is that she's holding one in one weird close up of her legs. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and there's no guns in the story yeah. either. Like this is specifically goes to some weird like or just like, like a semi medieval dream realm or something like that. Yeah. Um, uh, it is eminently skippable and really it, just, it tells you nothing about tyranny it tells you nothing about um, the world that she lives in it, it, it's just bad especially because it's not even in the timeline of like I mean tyranny is a nun at this point for the record like we know that she is <laughs> we've she, seen she her dominatrix do nun things in a, a flesh worshipping cult no, it's just like a, the, the the standard, I mean, a space version, but the standard kind for the most part. And so this is like a flashback to her her mercenary days or something, but there's not even like, she isn't even like also doing like pretentious art pieces in the course of it or anything like that. Like this, this story could be about anybody, honestly. It's not, there's nothing that makes it spe- even like hinting at anything specifically Tyranny Rex. Yeah. Bad. <laughs> it could have been a standard Indigo Prime agent, like you know, and honestly, would even might have made more sense if it was for the record. Yeah, I, I mean, there is nothing about this that will make me go, "Oh, hey, Tyranny Rex, here's something I want to get engaged with or find out more about." Um, I mean, I, I I continue to feel better just when we started doing these annual these specials and annuals. I remember Fox and I being very self conscious about not liking the text pieces. So it's always nice to just sort of you know, no get no one likes them confirmation that uh, nobody reads. They're them. cheap because you don't have to pay an artist to do full. Right, you can get them to draw a small illustration, then blow it up. Yeah, I'd I'd be really interested. Honestly, if there's one or like you know one of my many like I sh- I really should reach out to people and figure it out. But just see like I don't know if they just had standing orders with John Smith for these because he literally does write all the text pieces in this era. I think, and they just sort of had like you know what his process was and sort of I don't know how they like sort of how they how they came to him and established this setup. I guess I'd imagine that he could because. You know, you're not hiring writers in general to be prose writers. You're hiring them mm-hmm. to be comic strip writers. So right. um, the fact that someone can produce a readable piece of prose, even though it's rubbish, uh, makes, yeah, why would you try right. someone else when you know that he can do it? 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that, that definitely makes sense for sure. Just yeah, of who's available and willing to, to take the time for it because it's got to be much different than, than dashing off a comic strip or, or I mean, a, a di- it's certainly different formats, right? In prose than to organize things in panels or however, whatever the, your comic writing style is. I guess talking about um, up and coming young, young comics writers. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Jump to Thrill 7, Maniac 5. Uh, script robot Mark Miller, art robot Dave Hine, and, Do- and Dondi Cox, letting robot Annie Parkhouse. So it's the debut of this new thrill, which will appear in Prague 842 as part of the summer offensive thing. Uh, Dondi Cox is a new name for us, and I believe is working as a colorist here. We've got a ticker tape parade in New York City as we all celebrate the big win over the European super state at the hands of a bunch of uh, Marines and U.S. troops. And most notably, H. Ross Perot's Maniac uh, program. And I remember, you know, H. H. Ross Perot was a presidential candidate in the U.S. in 1992. And I definitely remember, like... I don't think he actually did it, but there were rumors that he like funded like Rambo two style military raids to find lost POWs and MIAs in Vietnam, I think. But I don't think that actually happened. But everybody's happy as the red head banded maniac five thinks back and we sort of flash back to a war torn London as a flying maniac two and a giant maniac five roll through the streets, just slaughtering soldiers and stuff. London's burning. We got some sort of Apocalypse Now style, you know, the sweet smell of blood and napalm in the air. Um, we see Maniac 5 burst into a field hospital and flamethrowering everybody in there, which is definitely a war crime, but whatever. Um, and then he goes to check in the progress of Maniac 4, who's moved to the exclusion zone I get, and it's a big crater just sort of slaughtering civilians, basically. Maniac 5 suggests that 4 be disconnected. As we see back at base, there's this guy with all these tattoos on his arms and shoulders with the top of his, of his skull cut off and then a bunch of wires going into his exposed brain and stuff, which, you know, can't be like, you get a bug in there. You got to be careful. Um, but there's bigger problems because that dastard prime minister, Tony Blair, is gone for the suicide option. And satellites are doing stuff. It's the eye in the sky. The satellite sort of pops a missile and goes to fire it. Uh, Maniac 2, who can fly, flies out to meet the missile and tries to mess with its guidance systems and stuff, but it's no good. So we get kind of a Dr. Strangelove thing as um, the robot is ripping wires out of the missile as it eventually smashes into London and destroys it in a giant mushroom cloud. Uh, we see Maniac 5 stumbling through the wreckage after the blast, and we learn that the war suits survived the blast, but who knows what damage they, they sustained, and we're back at the parade as a general and a science dude in a lab coat talk about how Maniacs 1, one 2, and 3 were all sort of destroyed in the blast, and Maniac 4 has gone insane. And the president wants to shut down the surviving Maniac 5, but but Perot's against and is funding the program. He's keeping five on ice, possibly developing new Maniacs. And the general doesn't trust Perot, especially because we learn that he's keeping Maniac 4's brain on ice, which is floating uh, brain in a jar with eyeballs. And they wonder what that billionaire's up to. And I guess we'll find out when Maniac 5 comes to the prog starting soon. And this is just a, you know, whatever. I mean, this one does have guns. It, it, and it has big guns. Uh, in fact, I described yeah, them as bigger than the guns elsewhere in this prog. 
Absolutely. As a big guy with a Gatling gun, there's a nuke. That's a pretty big mm. gun, I'd say. Like, you know. Um, yeah, this is interesting. I mean, to start with, uh, I've known David Hine for a number of years. Um, I, first of all, as a writer, but also yeah, I interviewed him at a convention um Gosh, close to a decade ago now, but we've been friendly ever since. Uh, but I oh, don't nice. really know him as an artist. I, I know that he's got this background. So this is one of my first times and, you know, the few things he's done, the prog, the only exposure. Um, so that, that was kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, this is just a, a strange, psychotic bloodbath of a strip. In, in two hours, they destroy all of London and take it over for Perot. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, this is very much... My understanding is that this is very much the thing of um of of Maniac Five is this sort of indestructible murder robot yeah. and you know milk controlled by brain. We're very much sort of embracing like violence and bloodlust as part of this summer offensive thing for 2000 AD. Yeah, you know? I kind of feel like it's a bit hard to actually judge this, <laughs> knowing that it's, a, it's right. a precursor to the to the main thing that the summer offensive. You know, it's what it is. It has its reputation. Mm-hmm. I very much want to decide on each of those when I get to them. Um, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm interested to get to it for sure. <laughs> it's sort of we've been building to it. I guess I think this is the first. It, this might be the first time Tony Blair is mentioned because 2008 tends to not really deal with present day stuff, other than you know whacking it on a, a block in Mega City One. Absolutely, yeah. I was interested to have, yeah, that we sort of had two political mentions of of, of both Perot and and of Tony Blair, who isn't, as I recall, isn't actually prime no, minister he was yet. The in newly minted leader of the, in fact, he might not even be leader of the opposition at this point. Um, hold on, when did John Smith die? Oh no, not the explorer. Don't want him. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, so you know, listen. Even even for even within two thousand AD, it's a name that's got a, that has some so John Smith was the leader of the opposition at the time. He died um, very unexpectedly in uh, ninety four, and that after the leadership battle, Blair became leader of the opposition, and then on to uh, prime minister of the UK before finally reaching his his zenith which is as the start of Blair One in 2018. Indeed, yeah. Um, that's one that I've, I, I, I haven't read, but I've seen and really yeah, like... I, I'm aware. <laughs> am dreading just because I feel like it's going to be full of jokes that I'm not... I, I'm going to need people to explain <laughs> to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, the only thing I really know about it is that in the Millennium Edition of 2018, they, he blew up and took out the Millennium Dome. Spoilers, uh, but that's that's because it was mentioned in SFX, which I was buying at the time. Anyway, um, so yeah, as I mentioned here, um, but yeah, this all this all feels yeah. You know what? I I can't even describe it. I, I let let me get to the progs. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it is weird. I was, I was, I'm glad they sort of say that this is a premiere for it because I was very worried about where I was putting this episode mm. in the timeline of like, are we supposed to know who Maniac 5 is going into this special? But we definitely aren't. Like, we, it's sort of, this is supposed to be just a, a teaser of coming events, basically. Mm. I guess, you know, just sort of more, more explosions to come is my understanding of, of Maniac 5. Yeah. Um, oh man. Okay. <laughs> I guess, but going from a, uh, listen, let's, let's transition from a comic with a lot of guns. I just talking about our top, our, our supposed theme to one with no guns for some reason <laughs> <laughs> with thrill eight strontium dogs. 
Uh, script robot Igor Goldkind, art robot John Beeston, and Colin McNeil, lettering robot Annie Parkhouse. Uh, can I have a crack at synopsizing this? <laughs> oh, please. Oh, please. Uh, a strontium dog wanders into the Spider-Man meme, then wanders off again. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right, for sure. <laughs> Just a lot of, a lot of pointing. <laughs> like, you, no, you... <laughs> Anyway, sorry, you carry oh, on. No, please. That was it. Yeah. I just wanted to make a joke. <laughs> it's <laughs> Yeah, it's the it's the first time we're seeing John Beeston here. Um he'll mostly just be a letterer, I believe, in in the magazine. And I believe he's now the creative director of an animation VFX studio. And I think he's taking the lead on art as well, just because this has some Colin McNeil feels to it, but but not exactly what I'd expect from Colin McNeil in this era, I guess. I don't know. Um a red-haired strontium dog with giant wings walks through a desert mesa, and we see narration boxes that offer to give him the answers to everything, and other boxes telling the previous ones to shut up. And it seems like this angel guy is talking to a, uh, a clear green cube that he's got, sort of cosmic cube-sized, I suppose, to get to, to talk Marvel for a moment. Um, but there is a little dot inside it seems to be the actual, like, mutant that Angel has captured here. Um, he says he's been looking for this thing for 10 years, and now he's going to bring it home and get big money out of it, I guess. Um, and that's sort of all, you know, it's, again, I don't know, tiny, all-knowing mutants. They don't really explain what it, what's going on with it that much. But eventually, Angel makes his way through the Badlands here to this giant structure of two towering obelisks. Um, from a door in the side of one of them, a dark blue, a, a dark blue man comes capering out and like grabs Angel's knee and asks him to, uh, to destroy my opponent. Gets very big teeth as he says this. The angel says no, he's got other things to do, but when he tries to walk off, he gets zapped by a force field, which it seems this blue guy has created and won't and he won't remove it until angel kills this opponent guy and even if angel kills the the guy then the force field will stay so he's got to do it basically um he walks into this other obelisk and in the throne room there is basically the exact same blue guy there's some confusion over who's who we learned that i guess the first blue guy is named Torak, and this one's named Resbin. It doesn't matter. Or Resb. And now he hires the Angel to kill the other, to kill the first blue guy. So he's stuck in two force fields. Oh no. Angel grabs the, grab, like puts these two blue guys together, and they are sort of perfectly identical. And he's like, hey, what's going on? Why do you guys hate each other so much? You're exactly the same. And then they get into a big fight again with the, with the Spider-Man pointing, and they explain that um, one of them's got clockwise DNA, and one of them's got counterclockwise DNA, like the spiral of the strands. And so they're like loathsome mutants to each other. And Angel's like, ah, oh, these sneeches keep fighting over the beaches, but they could just walk sideways or something. And in the end, the two blue guys start fighting, and they lower the force fields because Angel's too dumb to see the differences between them. And he walks off, and I guess that's, I don't know, don't fight amongst each other, folks. You gotta pay attention to the bigger picture. The end. Yeah. Um, I don't know. <laughs> this was interesting. Um, 
I, I'm flicking through it. I'm amazed at the the massive inconsistencies in the artwork. And mm-hmm. sometimes it's uh, beautifully painted and rendered. At other times, like the page just after the force field goes off and uh, it's just lying there in the rubble and his face literally changes from the second to third panels, like completely different yeah. face. So, uh, you know, I don't know if it's Rush. I don't know if the, the this um, Beeston guy who I don't really I think, know. Yeah, I, um, I think we're seeing, yeah, some of that I, I, I would guess is just like just down to having like mo- or maybe, maybe not moment to moment things. But I think the big changes in art are sort of maybe what Beeston's doing versus what, what McNeil's doing or something yeah. like that. But I mean, as far as a, a one off strip goes, actually, this is this is quite fine. Um, I, I'm not not yeah. willing to say that it, it's good because I think the artwork really works against it, despite some lovely stuff happening. But yeah, mm-hmm. as a, this sort of uh, this guy just wandering into these two idiots and their futile argument, working it out, and then just going, "Yeah, sod it, I'm off." <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that you know, I'm sort of taking the piss out of it, but I think it is kind of fun and just I don't know. I I like the idea of sort of. Astronium dogs traveling the galaxy to meet space weirdos, you know, like like as as a mechanism for learning about space weirdos, I, I think is is kind of fun. And I don't know, like I I I wish it was reoccurring, just because I'd kind of like to see some more with this uh, with a little thing in the cube, I guess, just because that's very much sort of out of nowhere here, and seems like it, it it would be part of the plot, but instead just seems like it's just adding an extra page or two to the to to to, to the comic honestly because you could have this whole like if you started this on page three and then ended it like the page before or and and then sort of had him walk off like if you skip the opening two pages the comic would be basically exactly the same i think but you know yeah it's interesting i think it's one thing I, I think sort of, I don't know, from a strontium or from a strontium dog or 2000 AD mutant standpoint is I appreciate them having mutants that don't have mutant powers that do anything, I guess. Like he doesn't fly with these wings or anything, um, which is sort of, I don't know, the version of the of the 2000 AD mutant where you're more just sort of ugly as opposed to it, it giving you combat abilities, which I think is, you know, more of an American mutant style. Yeah. But oh, we've run out of. Uh, yeah. Oh no, we, we've got a pin up, haven't we? No, no, no. Yeah, and then we finish up. We've just got a quick back cover, a bloody version of Ro- of the Friday Rogue Trooper by Ron Smith, running from an explosion on a rickety catwalk. You know, cool guys don't look at explosions, and neither does Friday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fine. Nice Ron Smith, but yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. Again, I, I, I'm a, I'm a big Ron Smith fan. Um, and I, but I feel like I don't know. Friday is just sort of a rough character generally. Like, no one's. I don't, I don't think anybody's favorite. And no, no, I don't think it's a big like. Oh yeah, Friday. That's the guy. You, know? you look at him and go, yeah, you're not rogue. Exactly. Like, oh yeah, the other guy. <laughs> but with that, oh my gosh. We've reached the end of the 1993 sci-fi special. Steve Lacey, thank you so much for coming aboard and traveling through these thrill corridors with me. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure to be back. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Got to do it more often. Or I guess, you know, we only got a couple more years of specials, so I'd love to have you on again. But before we go, I must know what your top and bottom thrills are. Uh, well, the top thrill goes to Big Spartan, Master of the Room, and Canny. Um just enjoyed that it was funny it, it was well drawn yeah i liked it uh bottom thrill mm-hmm. goes to 
uh, Tyranny Rex. <laughs> Calling it a thrill, it feels like um, Thug's going to get us under the Trade Descriptions Act. <laughs> Extremely fair. Um, I think for me, I mean, I'll certainly join you with, with a Tyranny Rex as my bottom. Um, I might, if 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 I if I had to pick like a new story, I don't know. I might say say Friday maybe. Uh, it's just because, or no, actually no. I'm sorry. I liked Friday pretty well. I don't know if I had to pick a new one. Maybe, um, I don't know. Uh, probably Brigand Doom actually, just because it was just sort of weirdly contextless, and I had to do. I, I feel like I had to do a lot of, of work putting together pieces to figure out what was going on in that mm. story. Yeah. Um, for my top, I think I might go with Maniac Five actually. Um, just because it seemed like a really, like, it was an action-packed debut for the character, I guess. And I kind of like exposed brains generally. Like, that's a fun character conceit, (laughs) I guess. Um, and it's something that was new for this story and that I'm, I'm interested to see in the progs. So I think it actually, it did what it set out to do, which was whet my appetite for the upcoming story, I guess. Yeah. We'll see if yeah, your appetite fine. is sated yeah. by that. <laughs> I mean, you know, I would like it to be. You know, <laughs> I'm always, I'm rooting for these for these thrills to be fun. <laughs> Hopefully, they'll they'll back it up. You know, but all right, fantastic. I hope everybody enjoyed the show. As always, you can find Space Spinner 2000 on iTunes, Stitcher, the Google Play Store, Spotify, or our podcast site, spacespinner2000.com. Feel free to contact us, spacespinner2000 at gmail.com, the 2000 forums, or, our Facebook inst- or, or on our Facebook or our Twitter pages, on Twitter at spacespinner2k. Otherwise, look up spacespinner2000. We should be there. And, you know, why not drop us a rating or review wherever you're listening? It helps us out. This show is brought to you by Steve Green, Robert Hardingham, and your friends the 2080 Forums. If you'd like to join them and help support the show, we'd appreciate it. Please check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Cradline, our podcast network, and there you can support the show and receive some excellent rewards. Steve, where can we find your uh, online endeavors? So uh, I'm around on Twitter at QuizLacey, Q-U-I-Z-L-A-C-E-Y. You can go to thefantasticast.com for our archive of episodes covering close to 20 years worth of Marvel comics, all with uh, one member of the Fantastic Four or more in them. So, uh, yeah, you can check that out there or search Fantasticast on any podcatcher except Spotify uh, because they they decided that our music was copyrighted and we weren't paying for it. So, you know, let's not talk about that. Let's just move on. Listen, I can I can empathize for sure. Yes. <laughs> I feel like I've got I've either got just a minute of it so they haven't struck me or I'm just flying under the radar or something like that. I don't yeah. know. But thank you so much again. Highest recommendation for the Fantastic S one. It's really important for me. Thank you. Um, then come back next time as we roll forward with Bad Company, Armored Gideon, and Firekind. Dread fights a terror from the Highlands, and we'll head to Saturn's moon to pay for our crimes as purgatory begins. And until then, I'm Conrad. It's David Steve Lazy. We are Space Spinner 2000. Splendid birthday!